0: Well, if you'll uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19 and verse 28 specifically, Luke 19:28, or you can follow along on you version. And uh, while you're getting there, we are getting close to Easter. We are already getting close to Easter and uh, we are going over the next few weeks to talk about the roads that lead to Easter. And so this morning we are going to start with the road that goes through Jerusalem You see the people had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting And we could keep saying waiting for a savior The old testament had prophesied that this would come a savior would come in isaiah chapter 9 verses 5 through 7 It says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, it tells us, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And so it had been prophesied, and then in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, we see the angel Gabriel appear before Mary and deliver this news that she was going to have a son. Virgin would be with child, and in Luke chapter 1, 32 through 33, this is what he tells her. He says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will will never end and he will reign and his reign will be if we could use one word to describe this reign this reign would be righteous jeremiah 23 5 through 6 as the days are coming declares the lord when i will raise up for david a righteous branch a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land and his days judah will be saved and israel will live in safety This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And so it had been prophesied, and so it has come. The Savior has come into the world, and we find ourselves now in Luke chapter 19, and it is a day of coronation. It's a day of coronation. The Savior is riding through Jerusalem, and in this story, in this story we're going to look at this morning, this You know, coronation, this triumphal entry, we see a lot of things take place and we see responses from different people. And I think as we look at this, it'll ask us the question how do we respond to our king? How do we respond to our king? And so we're going to start in verses 28 through 36 of Luke chapter 19. And it tells us this it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And so Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And he says, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, at this point in time, Jesus has been in Jericho. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea, below sea level. And so he's going to make his climb up. Uh, up the, to the Mount of Olives, going to go through Bethany. And in Bethpage, he tells them to go to the village ahead, enter it, and find a colt there. And you're to take that colt, bring it here. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 2, it tells us that there will be a colt and. A donkey there it says saying to them this is matthew 21 two. saying to them go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her and so jesus tells them in that text in matthew 21 to untie them and bring them to me and this is a wise idea to take both animals a young colt that's never been ridden it might keep the colt calm having its mother with him by his side And they get up there and they untie this colt. And the owners ask, why are you untying our colt? Valid question. If somebody came up and started trying to take something that belonged to you, you would wonder why. And then they tell them the Lord has need. The owners were probably followers or at least they understood the symbology behind what they were asking for. This was probably done quickly and quietly so that the religious leaders would not go after these owners because if these people were in fact followers of Jesus, it would not be good if the religious leaders had found out. The religious leaders had made it known that anybody who follows Jesus would be excommunicated from the temple. And to be excommunicated from the temple was a horrible thing for a Jew because that was where they worshipped. That was Uh, a place of community for them and to be kicked out from that would be a horrible thing and we see that this is a thing that's happening in john chapter 9 verse 22 says his parents said this because they were afraid of the jewish leaders who already already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that jesus was the messiah would be put out of the synagogue they didn't want to be excommunicated and so they do this quietly they give uh, these disciples, probably Peter and John, uh, then they get this colt and they take it to Jesus. And Jesus rides this colt. This is huge. This is important because this is prophecy fulfilled. In Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Prophecy has been fulfilled, and as they're going, we see the roads are covered with cloaks. They're covered with cloaks, and John, in his gospel, mentions that it wasn't just cloaks, but it was also palm branches. John 12 13 says they took palm branches And went out to meet him Palm branches in Jewish history Were symbolic of salvation And joy But the cloaks Why is the cloaks important Well 2nd Kings chapter 9 Gives us an example of this custom It says in chapter 9 verse 13 Of 2nd Kings they quickly took their cloaks And spread them under him on the bare steps Then they blew the trumpet and shouted Jehu is king The spreading of cloaks on the road was a traditional Jewish reception for loyalty. It carried the idea that they were placing themselves under his feet or under his submission, and so for them to lay cloaks on the ground was saying, we submit to you as king, we submit to you as Messiah, as savior. John MacArthur calls it the Jewish version of long live the king, and so the cloaks are being laid on the ground, and we continue in verse 37. And we go through verse 40, it says, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And so he comes in and the people start to praise God. And something to note of very, that's very important here, up to this point in time, Jesus had never allowed a public dis- demonstration declaring him as the Messiah. Matter of fact, when you read through scripture, when you read through the New Testament, anytime somebody tried to declare him as Messiah, he put a stop to it. It wasn't yet his time. And I believe that there's two reasons why, in this case, he allows for public demonstration. The first one is to fulfill Scripture, to fulfill Scripture. And we see that done in Zechariah, the fact that he's writing in on a cult. And they're shouting out messianic praise. And this messianic praise comes from Psalm 118, 25 through 26. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And all this is going on. The people are praising Jesus. They're throwing their cloaks, their palm branches. They're lifting up their voice. They're praising. And the disciples, the disciples don't know what to think about all of this. John tells us in John twelve sixteen through 18, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. The disciples, they don't understand what's happening until after Jesus is glorified. But now let's turn our attention to the Pharisees. We'll come back to these people who were singing praise, but let's turn to the Pharisees. This is the second reason why I believe that Jesus allowed this public demonstration. He's forcing the religious leaders to act. He's forcing the religious leaders to act. The religious leaders have never liked Jesus. When you read through the New Testament, you see they did not like Jesus. They thought everything he was teaching was blasphemy. They didn't like what he was doing and they just couldn't stand the guy. And so uh, they they wanted him dead. They wanted to get rid of him. And so now he's forcing the religious leaders to act. And how is he doing this? Well, they had hoped to arrest him after Passover. We are here for Passover. The reason everybody is in Jerusalem right now is because it is Passover. And there was, you know, some people say that there was possibly up to a quarter of a million people around Jesus the day he goes through Jerusalem. Just everybody from surrounding areas coming to Jerusalem for the Passover But they wanted to wait. Matthew chapter 26, 3 through 5, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. And so they were going to wait, but Jesus had a plan. He was going to force their hands. And why was he going to force their hands? Because we know that Jesus is the Passover lamb. John one twenty nine, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and asked, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Corinthians five seven says, Get rid of the old ye so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew this task that was ahead of him, and he had a plan. He needed to be on the cross by Friday, and so he was going to force their hands because he was Passover lamb. On this day, the day that Jesus would die on the cross would be the exact same day that the Passover lamb would be slaughtered in the temple for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. The same day the sacrificial lamb is slain is the same day the real sacrificial lamb is hung on the cross. And so he is the Passover lamb, and you see they had tried before, but yet it was not his time. John seven thirty says, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8 20 says he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come But now the time has come And this won't all happen today But this week the task will be completed John MacArthur he summarizes it like this. I really like how he summarizes this. He says in Jerusalem Had to be the place because Jerusalem is where all sacrifices were made That's where the altar was. That's where the temple was. That was God's city. It was the holy city, the temple city, the place where God met his people, the place where God was worshiped and the only place where sacrifices were made. So Jerusalem is the place and the time is now and it has to be this Passover in the year AD 30. Why? Because this is exactly 483 years after Daniel's prophecy Back in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of Daniel coming from God was that in 69 times 7 weeks, 7 weeks of the years 69 times 7 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off. He would be killed. 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes made his decree in 444 BC. The decree is made 483 years later. The prophet says the Messiah will be cut off. It is this year, 8030. The Messiah comes. It must happen in this city, in this year, at this time. He had a plan. He knew what the time was, and so he's forcing them to act. And they are upset. They're upset, and they see what's happening, and they tell Jesus he needs to stop. You're, you're blaspheming. You're making a, a play for the throne. You keep calling yourself king and ruler. You need to stop what you're doing. You need to tell them to stop worshiping you. Just stop it right? Like you're making things difficult for us. John 12, 19, it says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. You're causing a problem for us, Jesus. You need to stop this. And Jesus responds that if they stopped, the rocks would cry out. What does that mean? We'll talk about that here in just a minute. But in verse 41 through 44, it tells us this. It says, And so he gets out of the city and he sees it and he weeps. This is such an impactful moment in the life of Jesus. This is the second time we see him weep openly. The word here for weep, it's translated to mean he was sobbing. This wasn't just a, a small weep. This wasn't just a couple of tears coming from his eyes. This was him sobbing at what he had seen in Jerusalem. He's sobbing about what has taken place. If you've ever just sobbed, I think we've all have at some points you know how that feels to sob to to cry so hard it, it just hurts your body it makes you ache it's just it, it's hard to sob and that's what he sees here he's sobbing because of the condition of the city and mark more words it like this it says but he knows their hearts within five days many of those shouting hosanna will change their tune to crucify him They are committed to Jesus as their liberator king, and when he is arrested as a rebel, they will abandon him as a dangerous subversive. They're worshiping him because of his miracles. They're worshiping him because of what they think he's going to do. He's going to be liberator. He's going to come, and he's going to take us out of the hands of Rome, and he's going to be a soldier and a warrior, and that is who we are getting. That's who we're worshiping. But in five days when they realize that that's not who he is. And they change their tune quickly from praising him, Hosanna, to let's kill him, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus knows here that if they would have just recognized what was in front of them they would have found peace. He was right there in their midst. He was right there. The King of King, the Lord of Lords was right there in the midst of the people and all they had to do was turn to him and give their lives to him, worship him and they would have peace. And then they choose not to. And we come to verses 43 and 44 and it's Seems so dark your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side And they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls They will not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize God's coming to you. This is talking about the fall of jerusalem And jesus talks about it in other gospels in matthew 24 1 through 2 It says jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In Mark 13, verses 1 through 2, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Luke 21, 5 and 6, some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, and with gifts dedicated to God, but Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down, and he wasn't kidding. He wasn't joking. This wasn't some false thing that Jesus is saying. No, in AD 70, Rome will come and attack Jerusalem with General Titus leading the Romans during the reign of Vespian, and since this action co- coincided with Passover, the Romans allowed all the Jews to come into the city, but then they refused to let them leave. Thus, it strategically depleted food and water and supplies within Jerusalem. They surrounded the city so that supplies could not get into Jerusalem, thus causing many to die of starvation. And by August of 870, the Romans breached the final defenses and killed much of the remaining forces. The temple would be burnt to the ground, and it was the second time that the temple was lost. It's believed that the wailing wall that's in Jerusalem, you've probably seen pictures of it, it's the only piece of the temple complex that remains. It would have been a retaining wall that would have been used to enclose the temple plateau. There's a place in Jerusalem known as the Dome of the Rock. If you've never never seen pictures, you can look it up. It's an Islamic mosque likely people believe it likely sits in the spot of where the temple was and josephus a historian at that time estimated that 1.1 million people were killed although many say that was possibly an over exaggeration and jesus says even if i tell them to stop the rocks will cry out what does this mean well it means exactly this the rubble of the temple the rocks that have been destroyed, the rocks that are laying on the ground, these cry out to the disobedience of the people. In this moment, had they accepted what, that God was in their midst, had they accepted him, this whole thing could have been avoided, but because they choose not to, Jerusalem is destroyed and every rock that falls is a rock that cries out to him, the disobedience of the people. And so the road through Jerusalem well, I think this is important. The story is very important. And here's the question I think we need to ask this morning. Jesus is Savior. How will we respond? Jesus is savior. How will we choose to respond? You see, Jesus is our king. He is our savior. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and he is savior. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our adoration. He was worthy of the cloaks on the ground and the palm branches on the ground. He was worthy of every song, every word that was spoken about him that day. He is worthy, and we see the response of the people, and what is the response of the people? To miss it to miss it, to miss everything that was going around. The people who were worshiping did not really understand who he was. And just a few days later, they shout, crucify him. The religious leaders missed it. The people that were his chosen people, they all missed it. They wanted him dead. And the truth is, today, the world is missing it. I don't, have to, I don't have to talk much about it. You know exactly what's going on. Get on social media, look at the news, and it becomes so blatantly obvious that the world is missing the Savior. The world is missing it. The sad truth is, here Jesus is weeping over people who were just worshiping him. They were just singing praise to him. They were just singing about who he was, and he's weeping over these people because... They're filled with sin and the burdens of life. They were worshiping because of the miracles, because of who they thought he was and what they thought he would do. The religious leaders who had been waiting for the Savior to come, they'd been trying to kill him. These were God's chosen people and they missed it. And I think the same thing is happening today. How so? How so? How is this happening today? Well, here's a, there's a couple of responses here from different people Let's start with the people who were worshiping, throwing the cloaks and branches on the ground. You see, so many people today claim they worship Jesus, but really their hearts are not there. So many people claim to be followers of Jesus and yet their hearts are not really focused on Jesus. They come to Jesus thinking they can gain something from Jesus. They think that they can come before Jesus and they can get things such as wealth or a comfortable life, a genie in a bottle, somebody who will answer every single prayer exactly whenever they need it according to what they want. They believe that it's conditional. I'll follow Jesus as long as I have all of these things and I hate to burst the bubble. None of these things are promised to us. Wealth, comfortable life, none of these things are promised to us. A matter of fact, we are not promised an easy life in Christ. Jesus tells us this in Matthew, in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, and Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And we often hear this verse taken out of context, don't we? Whenever we have to do something we don't like, we say that this is our cross to bear. Like, ah, I gotta go to a place I don't like working. That's just my cross to bear kids. I got to go to school. That's just my cross to bear. We say that, don't we? That's just my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, if you really, truly want to follow me, if you truly want to be my disciple, you have to give up your life. All those things that, that you thought were more important, you have to give those things up. I need to be the most important thing in your life. You have to be willing to die to self. You have to be willing to die to self even when it's not the popular thing to do. You have to be willing to die to self when it's, not, or when it's something that nobody else is doing. You need to be willing to die to self. When everybody tells you you're foolish or you're wrong, you need to be willing to die to self. To follow Jesus is not easy. To follow Jesus is difficult, and it's hard because sometimes we think we want things our way. We want things to happen according to our plan, and that's not always what happens, and so it's difficult David Platt words it like this, the road that leads to heaven is risky, lonely, and costly in this world, and few are willing to pay the price. Following Jesus involves losing your life and finding new life in him. And I think Oswald Chambers takes it one step step forward. He says, if I'm going to know who Jesus is, I must obey him, and the majority of us don't know Jesus because we have not the remotest intention of obeying him. To follow Jesus is difficult. Sometimes life is hard and to trust him no matter what the situation, to trust him no matter what is happening is hard and it's difficult to get to heaven. It's a a tough thing. When the world is trying to tell you you should do this or you should act this way or you should be this. And I believe that's why we find scripture like this. Matthew 135 through 7 some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. This is an illustration of people who claim the name Jesus, but yet when they get into difficult situations, when life gets hard, the first thing they say is, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for difficult trials. I didn't sign up for hard times. I signed up for an easy life. I signed up for a God who will give me whatever I want whenever I need it. If he truly cares, he will do all that. That's the God I signed up for. And they flee. Or it's the ones who do everything, and yet their heart was never in it. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so that's the response of the first group of people. They were praising, and they were worshiping, and they were laying branches on the ground, and they were laying cloaks on the ground, and yet their heart was so far from him. They weren't truly following him. They were truly, they were worshiping what they thought he would provide. They were worshiping his miracles, not who he really was. And then there's a second group of people. There's the Pharisees. And for some time, they wanted this man dead. They never were going to believe in who he was. And the sad truth is, for some, there are people today that will never believe. They will never believe. And I I I think to pretend like everybody will believe, it, it's not the case. There are people who will go to the grave choosing not to believe. And they do this for many reasons. They don't want to follow the rules. They don't want to be told how to live. Always in their mind, the idea that I have time to change my mind, I can live for today, I can live for tomorrow, I can do whatever I want, I can. I can... Go and do all the things of this world, but then when it finally has come time, I can give my life to Him. I'll live for the world, and then just at the last moment, I'll give my life to Him. Proverbs 27 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised the next day. You're not promised the next seconds And then there are those, of course, who just simply say, I don't want to believe. I don't believe in God, and so if I don't believe in God, then I have absolutely nothing to lose. They use this thing called Pascal's Wager. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pascal's Wager. The idea of Pascal's Wager is this. If I choose not to believe in God, and then I die, and there is no God, then I don't lose anything. Nothing's lost. here's the thing about pascal's wager pascal's wager says that if you choose to believe in god and you die and you get to heaven and you spend eternity with him you gain and if you die and there is no god you don't lose anything but if you say that there is no god and you choose not to believe in a god and you are wrong you are going to spend eternity in hell it's the truth that's pascal's wager And so many people will just choose not to believe for whatever reason. It's a sad truth, and yet that is a truth that we have to realize. But here's the thing. We see two responses, and we can choose to either A, live for him, half-heartedly and not really actually live for him at all we can choose to say we are christian and we can choose to say we believe but not actually live it out we can say that we believe but never actually truly give our heart to him and as soon as things get difficult we flee we bolt we leave we can we can choose to live that way or we can choose to say i simply do not believe at all or we can pick the third option and it's not mentioned here specifically but this is what jesus talks about actually this idea of peace you can choose to see Jesus and you can choose to give your life to him wholeheartedly. You can choose to live for him. You can choose to give him everything and you can choose to follow him even when life is hard, when things get difficult, when the road starts to twist and turn, you can choose to live for him. You can choose to follow him with everything. You can choose to die to self and live for him. I want to give you one more response. If you do believe wholeheartedly... If you've given your life to him, if you put your faith in him, if you are willing to do whatever it takes, even when things are difficult, if you're willing to live for Jesus in all things, then you need to proclaim him. You need to tell people that he is king and he is savior. You need to tell people. We need to tell people. You see, it's not just Bobby's job or Cody's job, Nora's job it's all of our job. Every single one of us have the responsibility to share what God has done in our life. George Whitfield said it this way, he said, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. And Alistair Begg, I love how he puts it, he says, withhold no part of the precious truth, but speak what you know and declare what you have seen. Do not allow the toil or darkness or possible unbelief of your friends to dissuade you. Let us rise and march to the place of duty and there declare what great things God has shown to our soul. You see, here's the truth. We pray so often for revival, so often for revival. God, bring revival, bring revival. Change the world, bring revival. Please, God, start to to bring revival. Change the politics, change all of this stuff in this world. Please bring revival. And the whole time we are refusing to tell people about Jesus. How does revival start? It starts by us being willing to share the gospel with people. We have to be willing to tell our friends, our family, who we have relationship with about Jesus. We need to tell our coworkers, we need to tell the people around us about Jesus. Romans 10, 14 through 15, it tells it like this. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sin? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And the Great Commission calls us to go to all over the place in making disciples We need to share the truth, so that nobody misses an opportunity. And the people missed opportunities, or missed an opportunity to give their life to Jesus and to find peace. We have a responsibility to make sure that nobody goes without hearing, without having an opportunity. And so here it is, he is savior. He is worthy of our praise, he is worthy of our adoration. How will we respond? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, please this morning do not miss an opportunity to give your life to Him. Do not miss your opportunity. He is worthy of our praise, He is worthy of adoration, and He is worthy of us giving our life to Him. Please do not miss an opportunity to give your life to Him. He has saved us from our sins. He is the Passover Lamb. He is the Lamb that was slain for us on the cross when He died. He was the sacrifice for us. 1 Peter 3, 18 tells it like this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirits. And he died for each and every one of us. And so this morning, please do not miss an opportunity to give your life to him if you haven't. On your connect card and around you, if you want to come talk to me, I'd love to talk with you about it. And maybe you're here this morning, and you are the person who says, man, I've claimed the name of Jesus, and yet I really don't live like it. And I I say that I follow Jesus, and yet my heart has felt so distant from Him. I've been so concerned about what I have to get from Him, or what I can gain from Him. And here's the truth. Yes, following Jesus does give you something. It gives you an eternal inheritance. It gives you an eternal reward, a life spent with him in heaven. But if you're seeking after him for the things of this world, you're gonna be disappointed. And so maybe you're here this morning and you need to focus your heart back on him. Believe in him wholeheartedly. Give everything to him. If that's the case, you can pray, pray those things, give those things to him. where you're sitting, you can come and talk with me. I'd love to pray with you he is savior he is savior and on that day there was a coronation and he came humbly riding on this donkey but guess what there's going to be another coronation someday in the future he will return and this time it will not be so humble and I don't want to spend that day not believing and so if you've never given your life to him please do so this morning if you have a decision to make please make that decision as we stand and we sing